Welcome to Respect Life Radio. My name is Deacon Jeff Bennett with Catholic Charities of the Archdiocese of Denver. And remember, you can listen to all of our shows at respectliferadio.com. Today, our guest is Father Peter Stravinskis. He has a doctorate in philosophy and school administration. He has a licension of sacred theology and has earned a doctorate in sacred theology. He's also the founder and superior of the Priestly Society of the Blessed John Henry Cardinal Newman, a clerical association of the faithful, which is committed to Catholic education, liturgical renewal, and the new evangelization. And Father, thanks for joining us today. Pleasure to be with you. So you wrote a recent article in the Catholic thing, and it's called "What Really Needed," to, "What We Really Need for a Eucharistic Revival," because I'm sure many people who are listening have heard that that's the focus of the bishops over the next few years. Um, but you know, it seems like we've gotten to the point now where a very small majority believe in the true presence of the Eucharist. And this has been going on for a long time, and it's been decision after decision after decision here in the American church, and I'm sure throughout the world, where we've really undermined the importance and what the and that the Eucharist is, really is the body, blood, soul, and divinity of our Lord. I intuited a problem about this back in the early 90s, and I uh, collaborated with uh, the Gallup poll to produce a study on Eucharistic belief among Catholics. And that was the, that was the first uh, shot across the bow. And that study revealed that it was fewer than 30% of Catholics who went to Mass every Sunday believed the Catholic doctrine of the Eucharist. And then fast forward another 20 years, the New York Times did a similar survey and came up with the same figure. And then what was it, three years ago, the bishops discovered the same figure once again. So we're talking about something that goes back 35, 40 years and uh, with no appreciable positive change. And, uh, and you know, you just gave forth the, you know, the traditional catechism answer uh, that Christ is present, body, blood, soul, and divinity. And, and that's obviously true. And frankly, I haven't heard anybody contradict that in a classroom or a pulpit. But so why the lack of belief in that truth? And I suggest that it's because of the way uh, we regard and, and handle and manhandle the Eucharist so that the signs and symbols of the liturgy are not reinforcing the doctrine. Well, and for people listening, it's not like uh, you're the only one saying this. You know, we've talked to Bishop Athanasius Schneider, who said the same thing, and others have said the same thing. It's just, I hope, that the bishops are listening to what's being said because, you know, it was almost like that the, the final uh, degradation of the Eucharist was the closing of the churches during COVID. So the, you know, the source and summit of the Christian life was locked out to people because they were afraid of getting sick. Well, uh, I'm not so sure that that was uh, behind it all. Um, I, I think that the bishops could have handled it better, but I suspect that the bishops closed up shop in, in many places, uh, first of all, to do it themselves before trying to be forced by the state to do it. So it wouldn't, like, it wouldn't look like they were complicit. Uh, and secondly, I think there was a fear of lawsuits. Uh, we're a litigious society, and the church has been badly, badly affected by that, so that 
you know, if grandma went to church and got sick, uh, the grandson that didn't see her for 20 years would sue the church saying, you killed my grandmother. So I, I think that was behind it. They didn't say it, but that's my understanding of it. I, I think the problem is, is far, far deeper than that. And, uh, you know, you talk about, you hope that the bishops are, are getting the signal on this. The truth of the matter is, I don't see any diocese in which the issues that I raised in the article uh, are are being taken seriously simply because most of what I mentioned in that article have now become institutionalized procedures. Uh, so the regular recourse to extraordinary ministers of communion, communion uh, on the hand, standing for communion, uh, a one-hour communion fast, all of these things undermine uh, the teaching. How could you expect a seven or eight-year-old child to conclude that he's about to receive the body and blood of the second person of the Trinity uh, when the local hairdresser is distributing it uh, and there are no external signs of reverence or anything of that nature? Well, I mean, I couldn't agree with you more. I, I do think if they're going to start off this Eucharistic revival, uh, you know, regardless of why they did what they did during COVID, I think an apology to people to remind them that this, you know, we shouldn't have done this. This this is the source and summit of our Christian life. We realize people need this, you know, because they did say, look, mass wasn't obligatory. So they did give people an out for those that were worried about catching it. But you're right. I mean, you if you look at the people in the pews, some of them come up, look like they're going to the beach. Right. They're patting yeah. people on the back as they're walking up. They're chatting. I mean, there is no adoration. Right. There is no, no solemn focus on what's about to happen. Right. This renewal of the covenant Jesus made with us at the Last Supper. It's like, hey, I'm going to get this. It's my thing for the week and I'm done. And so, you know, until well, see, I think, first of all, yeah. there, there's a, a more fundamental mistake here. We don't go to mass to receive communion primarily. Right. right? Uh, the principal reason for going to Mass is to participate in the renewal of Christ's passion, death, and resurrection, the self-offering of himself to the Father. Whether or not we receive communion is a side issue. And for centuries, people went to Mass regularly and didn't receive communion. Now, I think it's a good development since the time of Pius X that there is more frequent communion, but also, we know, familiarity breeds contempt. And, uh, and so now the perception is, uh, you know, unless you're a, a, a Hitler or a, an axe murderer, uh, everybody should be running up and, and, and getting his share of the, of the, of the meal. And uh, that's, the, that's the first problem. And, uh, yeah. yeah, I was just going to say, because we're not obligated to receive Jesus but once a year. And I mean, I get your right. point, but if you are going to go up and receive him, then that tremendous reverence, and you talk about whether it's receiving him in the kneeling position, this adoration position, receiving him on the tongue and not on the hand. I mean, there's things that we can do to show that we understand what we're receiving and show our Lord great respect when we do receive. Well, I, many, many young priests in particular <clears throat> have tried to implement some of the suggestions I made in that article, and uh, and they get tremendous pushback from the oldest generation in the parish, who then often enough 
send letters to the chancery office complaining about the priest. The priest gets called in and says, you're upsetting the apple cart, drop the issues. And, uh, and that's very unfortunate. Uh, so the tail is wagging the dog. Uh, as I say, these are institutionalized practices now. And that's why in, in all of this talk about the Eucharistic revival coming from the Bishop's Conference, none of these issues, not one of them, is addressed. It's, well, it's, you know, talking about going for Eucharistic adoration once a week. Well, that's nice, but, you know, that doesn't affect 99% of the people who are at Mass on Sunday. Yeah, and I think, you know, to your to your point, if, you know, if people have high hopes that the Eucharistic revival is going to be successful, then that then that thought process and that way that they handle priests that are trying to bring more reverence has to change. Otherwise, you know, they're going to come up with some some slogans or whatever. And unless we see things change, and I think that, you know, when I read your article, it's like unless there are concrete changes and you spelled out a bunch of them, and I would encourage people to go on the Catholic thing and look it up, um, then, you know, slogans and talks and all those things are good. But, you know, the proof is in the pudding and we're not seeing that. Well, you know, another aspect of this uh, Eucharistic revival is supposedly sending out so-called Eucharistic missionaries to preach in parishes about the the real presence of Christ in the Eucharist. Uh, it's a nice idea, except that, number one, uh, any pastor who's going to invite them to come uh, already believes that and presumably has already communicated that truth to his people. Uh, right. And uh, so I don't know what's to be accomplished uh, by that. And the entire program is costing millions of dollars. Uh, and I'm afraid that, you know, when it's all over and you take a survey two or three years after the so-called Eucharistic revival, you're going to have the same statistic that I uncovered in 1992. Yeah. You know, the common saying, you know, what's the definition of insanity? doing the same thing over and over, expecting a different result. Uh, you know, we have to be willing, we have to be willing to say that mistakes were made along the way. Uh, and sometimes people will say, oh, well, that's looking backwards rather than forwards. I mean, the Pope himself said that a couple of yep. weeks ago. And, yep. uh, but, you know, if you go to your doctor and he says, uh, uh, Jeff, you're uh, 50 pounds overweight, and if you want to make it to next year's med medical exam, you better lose 50 pounds. What does that mean? You've got to go back to the weight you carried maybe 20 years ago. Uh, yeah. Otherwise, you're not going to be around. And, you know, it takes sometimes a big person to admit that a mistake has been made. But certainly multiple uh, liturgical mistakes have been made. And that has nothing to do with whether you want the Tridentine Mass or the New Rite or any Rite. That's not the, the issue here. It's we have to be, I firmly believe, by the way, that a large number, perhaps even a majority of people who go to the extraordinary form or whatever we're supposed to call it now, uh, go there precisely to avoid the Eucharistic abuses that I identified in that article. It's not that they're going necessarily because of the Tridentine Mass itself or the form of it, but the things that don't go on at that Mass that they find offensive in their mainstream parishes. 
Well, and that that very well may be so, and I wouldn't blame people for doing it. And I think it's, you know, for people who have that reverence, it's very distracting to be at a mass. And I mean, you've seen it, I've seen it. You know, you say the body, the body of Christ. You know, if somebody looks at you like, you know, you just said good morning, and they stick yeah. out one hand, or you know, whatever. There, there, that that lack of reverence and. You know, you mentioned in the article about Vatican II, right? Vatican II, you know, and there's a lot going on with that, but they they never outlawed ad orientum. They never outlawed the use of Latin in the mass. It's just people have gone and run with this and, and perverted what was going on. Well, of the, of the 10 items that I mentioned in that article, not one of them has any grounding in the liturgy document of Vatican II. And... Uh, uh, you know, Cardinal Lorenze is the sole surviving father of Vatican II, and of course, as you may remember, for a number of years, he also headed the liturgy department at the Vatican, and uh, I asked him one time, you know, if one of the council fathers walked into your average American church on a Sunday morning, what would be his reaction? He said he would have cardiac arrest, uh, because none of it, none of the, what goes on would be would have been in the minds of the council fathers. Well, and I think that's a good point, and and to hear that perspective. But you know, we also see you know those bishops that tried to hold people who are you know in grave moral sin and doing so in a public way, you know, to say, hey, in an act of love, you should not receive the Eucharist, right? Then they get accused right. of weaponizing the Eucharist, and even the Vatican doesn't follow what the local bishop of a politician did in terms of prohibiting them from receiving the Eucharist. So it just seems like, like you, you mentioned earlier, anybody can see, can receive Jesus at any time for any reason, and it doesn't really matter. Yeah, and, and if that's the case, then it doesn't matter. That's, that's the only conclusion you can come to. You know, that, that famous comment by the, a fundamentalist minister a number of years ago who said, if I believe what you Catholics say you believe about the Eucharist, I'd have to crawl up the center aisle on my belly. Uh, and we don't see anybody crawling up the center aisle on a belly. Uh, it's, it, it's a very casual approach, and then we can't help but expect that a casual approach is going to bring about a denigration in, in the belief. You don't need anyone to you know, challenge the Catholic teaching of the Eucharist. We do it by virtue of the way we celebrate the liturgy. Yeah, I mean, the, the, all we have to do is look in the mirror and the enemy's looking right back at us. It's not something yeah. from the outside. This is from within, which makes it even more disappointing. But it is incumbent on each and every one who's ever listening. Right, We can show that respect. We can be a model of what it means to understand who Jesus is in the Eucharist and what we are receiving. And if more people did that, it almost would have to be from a bottoms-up approach instead of a top-down. Well, you know, I've often made the point that uh, no heresy in the Church ever started from the people. It was always a clerical phenomenon. <laughs> and, and conversely, no real reform ever took place except from the bottom up. Uh, now, you can point to the Council of Trent, that was a top-down reform, except that the bishops, the Pope and the bishops, had to be dragged into that because they lost, you know, a third to a half of Western Europe to the Church. So, yeah, I, I think people themselves have to stop complaining about problems 
and don't be a participant. I mean, I've had so many very, very fine, wonderful lay people say, you know, I'm a Eucharistic minister. I really don't like doing it, but the priest asked me to do it. Well, if you had a problem with it, you should have said, sorry, Father, I I find that a very difficult thing to do. I don't think it's correct. I don't think the circumstances in our parish verify the norms set by Paul VI. Don't do it. Um, and instead, you know, there's there's complicit uh, behavior. Yeah, and people don't see somebody who has maybe a consternation about something. They just see them doing it. And so whether it's too many extraordinary ministers of Holy Communion, you know, really the, the receiving on the tongue is such a more reverent way. Uh, the hand, because, you know, you can just see, I see the particles when I, when I, when I purify the patent. If people just had an idea of how irreverent it is to receive on the hand, I think, you know, that's something that could easily talked about and encouraged for the laity. Yeah. Again, you know, if a, if a priest does that uh, very, in many situations, uh, he's condemned for it. Uh, now, I mean, the simplest procedure is to distribute Holy Communion by intinction, uh, mm-hmm. which, first of all, unites us with all the other 22 rites of the Catholic Church and all of Eastern Orthodoxy. And uh, so the priest you know, dips the uh, sacred host into the chalice and places it directly onto the tongue of the recipient. And what are the advantages of that? Well, first of all, there is no communion in the hand possible with that mode of distribution. Secondly, as I say, it unites us with the other Catholic rites of the Church plus the Orthodox, so there's an ecumenical uh, component to it. Uh, thirdly, you have the double sign, the fuller sign of reception under both forms. Uh, and of course it eliminates the need for extraordinary ministers of communion. But well, and on uh, top of that, I think I've distributed communion that yeah. way since I was ordained. Uh, and, uh, and I've always done it and uh, I've never gotten any pushback from the average layperson about it. Uh, you know, some of the perpetual malcontents uh, will, you know, complain about things like that, like some of those people who participated, you know, in these diocesan uh, listening sessions, supposedly uh, for the synod on synodality. You know, uh, 99% of normal uh, Catholic families don't have time to go play around with games like that. Yeah, and the other thing is when you're using now, first of all, you you know, people would have to put back the communion rails that they yanked out. But the other thing is you're more likely to have people well, receiving many, many kneelers. Priests, many priests are putting kneelers in the front, uh, two yeah. kneelers. And uh, and so for a stopgap stop measure, that's that's easily accomplished. Uh, there's a, uh, a kind of a liturgical goods recycling center on Staten Island. And uh, I went in there to get some items a couple of years ago. And I saw some altar rails, and I said, uh, you know, how many do you have? And he said, well, first of all, we're sold out of them. He said, all kinds of young priests are buying them up. He said, I have a waiting list of about 20 pastors that want to buy altar rails that are being recycled from churches that closed or whatever. So uh, so some of that is happening. Uh, and again, the young priests are the solution to the problem if people don't get in, in in their face and get in their way of doing the job. So if you don't have, you know, some kind of liturgical Nazis uh, saying you can't do that, 
the instincts of the junior clergy are very, very good, very healthy. Well, that's good. It's encouraging to hear, and I'm glad to hear that. But you're right. I mean, we have a lot of modernists in the church, even in the hierarchy of the church. So when somebody, you know, a liturgical Nazi speaks, they tend to get greater attention than somebody who's abusing the liturgy. And when, when the parishioner speaks, little, little, if anything, gets done. And I've seen that done over and over again, which is really discouraging for the lady, not an excuse, but it can be discouraging. And they have to continue to battle and continue to write and continue to push these points, because if they don't, well, nobody's part, going. Part, of, part of the problem is, you know, in the immediately in the immediate aftermath of Vatican II, uh, where we were overloaded with a lot of liturgical nuts, to put it plainly. Uh, yeah. But those people used used the attitude of obedience of the old church to force people to do things that went against their better instincts or even conscience. And they said, no, you know, Father said, do it. And so, oh, oh, well, I guess, you know, if the priest says to do it, you better do it. Uh, you know, jump off the Golden Gate Bridge, Father said. Yeah. Uh, so I think that, but that attitude, you know, is not much in play anymore, thankfully. I mean, yes, people ought to be respectful and obedient to uh, legitimate authority, but as the good old Jesuits, one of their many sayings is, I have no obligation to obey, but you have no right to command. And so, <laughs> and, the, uh, and I think that, that needs to be, it's a reasons approach to the virtue of obedience in the church. Well, I think that's, that's a good point, and it is a reminder to us. I think that's why this article is so important, because I think when people read it, especially those that have been in the church a long time, Everything makes sense. Nothing, nothing in that article would you say, no, why, why would you do that? Especially, you know, how many times in, you know, shortly after Vatican II that, you know, it was hide and go seek for the tabernacle because you never knew where it was. Yeah, well, that's like the, the old lady who, who said, that, uh, you know, I feel like Mary Magdalene on Easter morning. They've taken my Lord away and I don't know where they put him, you know. <laughs> mm hmm. Mm -hmm. So what would how would you encourage people? I mean, one, first of all, read this article. And I think sharing it with your pastor or with your local bishop would be a good idea just to say, hey, in, in, a, in a very you know respectful way, you know, here are some changes that I think would add to this Eucharistic revival. But there is things the lady can do. We've kind of touched on that. But would you encourage well, them I to say, speak up? I, I would say the first thing is, if you have a priest, who is attempting to resacralize uh, the reception of Holy Communion? Tell him you support him, because there will be people who are harassing him, and even worse, writing letters to the Chancery against him on these those things. So, you know, you all right. In theory, a priest is supposed to be a leader. He shouldn't worry about what people think and say. But priests are human, like everybody else, mm -hmm. and. Uh, and and so and, and and conservatives are particularly bad at uh, affirming people and doing the right thing because they'll generally say, "Well, that's what he's supposed to do. He shouldn't get a prize for it." Well, yeah, but in the world in which we live today, uh, a little affirmation goes a long way. And and to say that you know, Father, I've noticed the way you celebrate Mass. I noticed the way you've distributed Holy Communion. Uh, I I'm edified by that. Thank you. Uh, Keep up the good work. I'm, I'm behind you. And lots of other people are, too. I think that's the first thing that really needs to be done. 
The other thing I think would be helpful if you're going to make changes, and I think, all, again, all the ones you listed, I'm like, yeah, absolutely. You know, maybe do some classes outside of mass, and you're not going to get everybody, but you can get people and explain why we're doing it, the importance of doing it outside of the mass, so that when people well, come no, to it the doesn't mass, have to be. The whole point is it doesn't have to be outside of the mass. Uh, I mean, yeah. the general instruction of the Roman Missal is clear that explaining the parts of the mass and so forth is apt material for a homily. Uh, yeah, it's what it's saying. You know, uh, here's what we're going to be doing. You know, uh, distributing communion by intention. Here's the practice. Here's what it means. Here's the tradition behind it. And uh, you know, talk about it. Uh, you know, maybe another five minutes, another week, and and in three weeks' time, we're going to do it, or we're going to start celebrating Mass on Orienta. Uh, what does it mean? Why is it done? Uh, and I mean, I've done that with a, a ten-minute mm-hmm. catechesis for a conference of 3,000 people in Kilkenny, Ireland. And mm-hmm. and the bishop who was present said, gee, nobody seemed to be disturbed by it. Well, why would they be? You know? Yeah. Uh, so I, I, I think that there's an awful lot that can be done, uh, but the element of fear has to be removed from the equation. And, uh, and knowing that, you know, if you're doing what is right and just in terms of uh, the proper reverence for our Lord, uh, that will be rewarded. And, uh, and you know, our Lord says, you know, John Paul's famous mantra, do not be afraid. Right? Uh, but, but, and it's the, other, the flip side of the coin, the, the liturgical nutcases in the 60s and 70s were not afraid to do horrible things with no justification whatsoever, shoving it down people's throats, no catechesis, no nothing. They were absolutely unafraid. And now we're supposed to be afraid to do what is the correct thing. Does it make sense? No, no, nothing makes sense other than we follow our Lord, we embrace his teachings, we, we you know, adore him in the Blessed Sacrament, and we have that courage. So I, I really appreciate you putting that article together. I encourage people to read it. We're down to about the last 20, 30 seconds. How can people follow what you're doing, Father? In general, they can go to uh, one of two websites. The first, johnhenrycardinalnewman.org, uh, and that's for the more general uh, theological issues. And then I'm also uh, president of the Catholic Education Foundation. We work with Catholic schools around the country, and that website is catholiceducation.foundation. Respect Life Radio is produced by Catholic Charities in the Archdiocese of Denver. And remember, you can listen to all of our shows at respectliferadio.com.